you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, we have been uh, making our way through this letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the church in Philippi. Uh, just to remind us that while Paul is writing this letter, he's in prison right now. He's waiting uh, his fate. He does not know what's going to happen to him uh, as he's going to be there before Caesar, though it seems like he believes he's going to make it because it's beneficial for the church in Philippi, but he's still not sure. So as we go through this letter, we see he's affirming the things he knows to be true in the midst of uncertainty. Uh, and it's been mostly a very uh, pleasant letter. You know, for the most part, he's commending this church in Philippi. This is a church that he's very familiar with. Uh, and so he's commending them. And encouraging them, though today we're going to get to some, some meat, some things that are, uh, some issues going on in the church in Philippi. Um, last time we were together, we saw that Paul encouraged us to note those whose walk with Christ is mature. And I would encourage you to find those believers in Christ. Find people who are older than you in the faith, who demonstrate a mature walk with the Lord. And the more you surround yourself with those people, regardless of your age, the more mature you will become. Uh, one of the greatest joys in our lives is to, to find people who have walked the walk, right? Who can't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. I, I love reading also biographies of, say, missionary people. You know, when you learn the mind of a missionary, someone who's willing to leave everything behind them for the cause of the gospel. That kind of mind is, is unique, right? It, it's, but it's beneficial. It's beneficial to see people who are willing to risk everything for the cause of Christ. So I would just encourage you, find those people that God will place in your life. Listen, God will be faithful to put those people in your life, isn't he? He's always faithful. And there may be seasons in your life where he'll put different people at different times in different places. But he's so faithful to put people in your path, divine appointments, if you will, to just continue to pour into your life. And also, mind you, as people are pouring into you, make sure you're pouring into others. Because it goes both ways. And I've learned that the more you pour out into others, the more God will be faithful to pour into you. And so it, it's, a, it's a discipleship chain that takes place. As people pour into our life, we pour into others. And that's been happening over 2,000 years since the church has been birthed uh, back that we see in the book of Acts. And so find those people whose walk is mature in Christ. Follow their lead. But he also warned us of those people who profess faith in Christ but are not so good examples. People who are in it for the wrong reasons. They may be able to talk the talk. They may be able to speak a good game. But when it comes to their life... Their life is actually opposed to the gospel. In fact, Paul referred to them as enemies of the cross. I don't know about you. I don't want that to be a title for myself. An enemy of the cross. That is not a good term to use. But these people, we saw their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame. But we saw, I think, that what culminates it is that their mind is set on earthly things. They, they profess to follow the Lord of heaven but their life is consumed with here, things down on earth. And therefore, they're concerned about things like title, position. You know, they want their way. And, and when things don't go their way, they will let you know. Um, and so mark those people as well. Obviously, if anyone was ever to teach anything contrary to the word of God, 
Mark that person, right? Don't listen to their teaching. As you're listening on the radio, as you're listening maybe with your iPad or uh, your phone, be paying attention. Does what people are teaching revolve around the gospel of Christ? Or does it point you to themselves? Does it draw you to how good that they are as a, as a person or as a teacher? Um, and he's marked, marked those people, warned us about them. Now, also in verse 20, he reminded us, our citizenship is in heaven. And I think that's the important thing for us to remember. This is where we're heading. This is our home. And if I understand that's where I belong, then that'll impact what I do presently today with every resource God has given me, my time, my resources, my body, my mind, right? It'll impact everything, hopefully, if I understand that's where I'm heading. And so again, while this letter is largely encouraging to the church, there seems to be at least one problem that Paul has to address that we're going to get at today. And, and by the way, we're, we're only going to cover two verses today, which is very rare. Usually we, I like to cover more than that. But I really feel that this is so important for us as a church to understand uh, that I, I'm going to break away from the text a little bit to just give, give us some background as far as how to deal with conflict or how to deal with sin uh, within the church. If, if we don't know how to do this, then there's going to be at some point division within a church. And so Paul's going to lay out some things for us in verses 2 through 3. Let's go ahead and read those together. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, no doubt, recall Epaphroditus had been sent from this church in Philippi. He had been sent to Rome to give Paul financial support. Because in those days, if you didn't have people providing for you when you were in jail or in prison, you weren't going to receive anything. You needed family, you needed friends, you needed the church to be there by your side, providing for you necessary items. And so this church, in learning that Paul was in prison in Rome, sends Epaphroditus on a very dangerous trip in which he almost dies. He gets to Rome, he gives Paul that financial gift. And no doubt, knowing Paul, the way that he's wired, as we see all throughout the New Testament, as he's given this gift, all of a sudden, the people within this church come flooding to his mind. We know that he prayed for these various churches, no matter where he was at. But this gift caused his, his memory to be sparked. He remembered this church in Philippi, and no doubt he asked Epaphroditus, How are they doing? How is so-and-so? How's Chloe? How's that Philippian jailer? How's his family doing? You know, I remember when I led these people to Christ. Because he was there at the beginning. He planted this church in Philippi. And so no doubt him and Epaphroditus get into this conversation about how things are going within this local church. And recall, though, first off in verse 1, this is Paul's view of these people. Before we get to the problem, notice he refers to them as his beloved, his longed-for brethren, his joy and his crown. So this is his perspective. Okay? This is his perspective of the people that we're going to be referring to moving forward. He loves these people. He loves them, not just like he planted a church and he walked away, said, I'll see you someday in eternity, you know, in heaven. No, he loves these people. He cares about them. And he longs for them. They're his longed-for brethren. They're his joy and his crown. We saw earlier he hopes to get back to Philippi to speak to them soon. 
But amongst the news of all that God was doing in Philippi, Epaphroditus touched upon a kink in this church's armor. Two women, both of whom Paul was well familiar, were at odds with one another. And we see in verse 2 their names, Yodia, not to be confused with Yoda, and Syntyche. And these two women, we really don't know anything about them. Uh, other than what's here in the text. You know, some people, when you go through Scripture, you can actually do a cross-reference and find out where they're at, maybe in the book of Acts or other places, and you get a little bit of background information. But we don't know much about them other than these two verses. But the Lord knows about them. They're his. They're his daughters. And Paul knows about them because he probably led these two people, these two women, to the Lord. What we can deduce from them is their names. Yodia means uh, success or a sweet scent and so that's a good name to have I guess if you're a woman you want to have a sweet scent wherever you go uh, and then syntyche means lucky or fate lucky or fate and so she was probably named after the pagan goddess of fortune in other words she probably came from a pagan background she probably wasn't raised in a, in a, a Hebrew uh, home and so both of these women at some points are led by Paul to Christ and we see in verse 3 that they labored with Paul in the gospel. And so these women have given much for Christ. Please understand, these women, though Paul is pointing them out, these, these are not enemies of the cross. Okay? That section, we, we covered that section last week, but we don't want to confuse these enemies of the cross whose God is their belly with these two ladies that he's speaking to right now. These are women who have labored to the point of exhaustion for the gospel. They are co-laborers with Paul. And so this is the identity that we can deduce from our text this morning. They are not problem children. In fact, we'll see he says their names are written in the book of life. So that's not speaking of someone who is an enemy of the cross. Yet, there is friction in their relationship with one another. Now, what's the cause of that friction? We don't know. The text doesn't really say. I think most commentators, when they look at this and they, they see that he refers to them as being, having labored in the gospel, a lot of people believe that this was maybe a ministry uh, rift between the two ladies. Maybe they had a different view of ministry and how a certain ministry should look. You know, maybe they were in a kid's ministry. I don't know what they were doing. Uh, it doesn't tell us. Many people believe that they would have been in some form of leadership, not necessarily a pastor, but in this city in Philippi, women had prominent roles in this city. And also, even within the church, we see there were many women present. Remember when Paul first went to Philippi and the ladies were there praying. Um, and so, no doubt, these ladies were at least held up as leaders within the church, probably leaders of women, if you will. And so they were women of high repute, high esteem, and yet something has caused their relationship to experience friction. And make no mistake about it, this is a rebuke. Okay, when Paul writes this to them, he's rebuking these two ladies, and he's naming names. Now, you might recall, Paul does name names from time to time, but usually never in this kind of context when you're talking about conflict. He does name names when he's writing about people, and he's remembering people who he loves and wants to encourage those people wherever they're at. Or he might even uh, mention people who were serving along with him, like Luke and different people. Um, and so sometimes it's a very uh, positive thing that he names names. Other times he may name names of people who have forsaken good doctrine or forsaken him in the ministry. Remember Demas, who loved the world, and he left Paul. Um, and so he does name names, but when it comes to church conflict, 
Typically, he just names the situation. But here he actually names names. Now, to understand the significance of this, because this is extremely significant, um, this letter that we're reading would have been read to the congregation in Philippi in a setting similar to what we have now. And so they would take whoever the pastor or president or whatever they called that leader was back then, uh, this person would have read through this entire letter to the church as they were there listening. And can you imagine being in that church in Philippi, you're reading this letter, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and all of a sudden, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche. And by the way, they're sitting right there. See, this creates a moment, if you will, within the church. This creates a situation where, no doubt, it's a little uncomfortable. Because at this point, we have these two ladies here with us, this is Paul, right? We understand today, this is the word of God. And he's speaking to these two individuals and also to the church collectively to work this thing out, to get this issue resolved. And we'll see the stakes are high for this, right? And so this speaks in, in two ways, I think, of Paul. Number one, it speaks of Paul's love for these ladies, you think, well, what does that mean? <laughs> what kind of love is that if you're going to put people on blast in public? Well, Paul loves these ladies, and he understands the significance of their role within the church and the impact that they have on other people's lives, and he loves them enough to speak the truth. See, it'd be very easy to just bypass that, this situation, and, oh, you know, they'll, get a, they'll, they'll figure it out. They'll, 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 get, they'll work it out together. Look, look at their history together. Look at how they've labored for the gospel together. They'll, they'll work this out. I'm not going to worry about this. But Paul loves them enough to address the issue. And isn't that true sometimes? That love demands us to speak out. It demands us to speak truth when it's necessary. Now we have to be careful with that. Sometimes we speak too soon. But no doubt it speaks of his love for these women. Number two, I think this is really neat. It speaks of his estimation of their maturity. How many people would be willing to sit in an auditorium or a house or wherever they were at, have their name announced from the pulpit, and stay and work it out? You know, I think of the church today, most of the time if there's a rebuke, and I'm not even talking about from the pulpit, if it's, there's a rebuke behind closed doors, people oh, I'm leaving that church. I'm, I don't want to be there. You know, I'll go somewhere where I'm wanted. Well, the fact that you are being rebuked is the fact that you're wanted. It's the fact that God loves you, right? See, this is evidence not just of Paul's love for these two women or this whole church. This is evidence of Christ and his love for this body of believers. He will not permit this to continue going on because he desires good things for this body. So this speaks of the importance of individual relationships within the church. Why? Why is it so important that these two women get, to get along together? Well, because the Lord himself speaks of how he values our unity. Do you remember when Jesus prayed in John 17? And do you remember as he's praying for his, his apostles, his disciples? This is shortly before his death on the cross. He's praying for them, but he also prays for those who would believe in the future. In other words, he was praying for us. And one of the things that he prayed, he said that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. 
In other words, what is Jesus basing that unity on as he's praying for his future church, his future bride? He's praying for their unity because he and the Father are one. Because that's God's nature. He's triune, we would say, trinity. He is one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in that oneness, there has never been a disconnect. There has never been a, a breach or a, a gap. There's never been a, a, a conflict, if you will. And we see this played out in Jesus' life. He was so obedient to the Father that he could say things like, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because they were one. They were united. In fact, even that night before the crucifixion at Gethsemane, what does he pray? Not my will, but yours be done, right? They were totally united, and it brought Jesus to the cross. It brought him to Calvary that he and the Father were one. They were of one heart and one mind. For God the Father so loved the world that what? He gave his only begotten Son. And Jesus himself said no one took his life from him, right? He gave it willingly. And so the fact is, our unity is rooted and grounded in the unity of God himself. We represent him. Which brings us to the second point that he made there in, in his prayer. His prayer was that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son. And so the church's unity is directly not only related to the God that we worship and serve, but it therefore becomes an aspect of our witness to the world. If we as Christians can't get along, what kind of witness are we being to those that we encounter? Well, I know about that church. Everyone's always fighting and bickering, you know. They don't like the color of the carpet, and so they have this mass revolt. Do you, can you believe there's actually been church splits over carpet? I remember early, early in the days of, of Calvary Chapel when, you know, Pastor Chuck wanted the hippies to come in. And the, the elders there, they wanted the, the carpet. They didn't want people with bare feet on the carpet. And what did Chuck say? He said, well, let's take the carpet out. Bring in the hippies. And so the unity of the body of Christ is so important. It's important for his name's sake, and it's important for our witness of his name. We represent him to a dying world. In fact, Jesus in Mark's gospel would also reckon us as salt. And he would say this, in referring to us as salt, he would say, salt is good, but if it loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, plural, and have peace with one another. And so he likened us being salt to this world by being united, by being one, by being of one heart and one mind. And no wonder this is a theme throughout Scripture, right? You're, you're familiar probably with the psalm that says, Behold, behold how good and how pleasant it is for, for brethren to dwell together in unity. And Paul, all throughout his letters, his epistles, would speak of the unity of the body and its importance. To the Romans, this is from 12, 16 through 18, he said this. He said, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. I think that's a clue when it comes to unity. There needs to be humility or else you're not going to have that. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men, and if possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And if he calls us, as much as depends on us as individual Christians, to live peaceably with all men, how much more would we apply that to the body of Christ? That we want to have unity within our church walls. In Ephesus, he said, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That tells me that if we're going to be united in Christ, it's got to be a work of the Spirit. 
that the Spirit of God is the one who's going to empower us to love one another genuinely. And how many of us have experienced that genuine love of Christ covers the multitude of sins? It covered our sin, thank God, on the cross, and it covers the sins of those who sin against us when the love of Christ is poured out by his Spirit. And to the church in Corinth, which was just a mess, he said, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's invoking the name of God in this statement, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and of the same judgment. Again, that unity, that oneness. The author of Hebrews said, pursue peace with all people. Now, on the flip side, as we've been going through the book of Proverbs, we see the flip side of this, which is the fact that God said he hates, there's six things he hates, seven are an abomination to him. And what was one of those things? He who sows discord amongst the brethren. And so on the flip side of that, not only does God desire peace, he desires us to love one another, he desires our relationships to flourish, but he hates those who sow discord. That's the two sides of the same coin that we see in Scripture. And so there will, for there to be any kind of disagreements within the church, though, I want you to think about this for a second. Doesn't there have to be some kind of meaningful relationships? Like if we just get together and we ask each other how the weather is, or, you know, hi and bye type of thing, and we just have that real superficial conversation, will we ever grow deep enough to have any kind of conflict? I don't think so. I mean, unless it's really superficial stuff like carpeting, you know, or lighting or something like that. In order for there to be genuine conflict, there has to be genuine relationship. These two women had a real relationship with one another. That's what's heartbreaking about the situation that's going on in Philippi. They had a relationship. Paul knew of that relationship, you know. And, and ultimately, things get messy when you're dealing with people. We, as a body of Christ, do you realize we are an adopted family? Every single one of us, if, you are, if you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you've been adopted into the family of God. Now, what's unique about it is that each one of us have been adopted, but we've all come from different families and backgrounds. And we've all been adopted into this one group of people having done things differently. And so if you serve with one another, at some point you're going you're gonna to probably say something that you shouldn't have said. You're probably going to do something that you probably shouldn't have done. And it's going to require you to have the skill to be able to maneuver through those type of situations if we have those kind of relationships. It's kind of like a marriage, right? You have two people, two totally different worldviews coming together. Why? So that we become one. Why? Because he's one. And you have two people whose lives individually come together into one union, one unity. Does that just happen easily? Those of you who are married, you have two totally different people coming together as one, and everything's just beautiful peace and harmony that first couple months of marriage. Wow. Everyone here's marriage was just perfect from day one, I guess. I think everyone's afraid to make an acknowledgement there. People are looking at their spouse. I don't know about uh, We were perfect right away, honey. No, but it's difficult. And you have to work together at those things. The Puritans called the, church, the, the marriage the little church within the church. 
because they understood that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where love begins to be tested and molded and shaped. And I've learned through the years of marriage that marriage teaches you a lot about love. It teaches you a lot about selfishness, too. I never knew how selfish I was till I was married. And then kids came into the picture and forget about it. Then all of a sudden you realize, wow, I can't live for myself. I have to live for other people. And it teaches you, especially someone like myself, I'm an only child. It taught me so much about getting out of self and serving others. And so that's a picture of the church. And again, these two women have labored for the gospel. They've rubbed shoulders, but now they're rubbing one another the wrong way. Now, notice in verse 2 that Paul will address each woman individually. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche. He could have just said, I implore Yodia and Syntyche. But he speaks to both of them. Don't miss some of those little uh, tidbits that the Holy Spirit drops within his word. He implores them both equally. In other words, he doesn't take sides here. I think that's wise. He doesn't try to set up a committee to try to figure out who's in the wrong and who's in the right and then work out a situation from there. He merely exhorts both of them in the same way to work this thing together for the Lord's purpose. Why? Because the stakes are high. Because because he understands that if this thing doesn't get resolved, you may one day have the church of Judea and the church of Syntyche. And then guess what? Everyone else has to pick which church you're going to follow. Unless you're going to start your own. But the stakes can be high with something like this. And so he exhorts them both, be of the same mind in the Lord. Now hopefully, since we've been going verse by verse through this book, we understand what is that mind? What is he trying to get them to see that similar mindset? Didn't Paul already go over that with us in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11? To have this mind which was also in Christ Jesus, right? And how he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. See, if that's the mind and the heart that we adopt, when you're faced with a conflict with someone else, that conflict, I promise you, will be resolved a lot more easily than if you retain a fleshly mind of, I want it my way. I'm not willing to yield, I'm not willing to bend. Well, guess what? The Savior of the world emptied himself and came down to us. He humbled himself. He didn't have to. But that's the good news for us. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The emptying of oneself for the sake of others. Now, Jesus gave us some guidelines with this. I just, I want to go over this because I think this is so important. If, if we don't employ these next couple of verses in, from Matthew's gospel, there will be division at some point in this church. Because the enemy has his tactics, he has his ways, and this is how he tends to work. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, um, as I said, usually we don't go away from our text, but this morning I, I really want us to understand just wisdom that Jesus has for us when it comes to conflict or sin, uh, sin usually leading to conflict of some kind. Matthew 18, uh, three, three little verses that if we impart this into our everyday life, I promise you good will come of it. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. And again, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, and notice the language, he says brother here, right? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. This is a good thing. 
But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen or, and or a tax collector. Now notice his counsel to us. This is so important. His counsel to us is to go one-on-one -on -one first. One-on-one -on -one first. This is incredible wisdom. Um, why is this important? Why is it important that we go one-on-one -on -one to the person? And, and by the way, depending on what translation of the Bible that you have, some translations say that if your brother sins, go and tell him to his face one-on-one. -on -one. Some translations, like the New King James, say if he sins against you. Okay, there's different manuscripts, and that's why it might read differently depending on what translation you're using. To me, it's kind of the same thing, whether it's someone who sins against me or whether I see my brother or my sister sinning. I need to go one-on-one -on -one to that person privately if possible, if it's a private matter, right? If it's a public matter, well, that's a different situation. We see Paul in the book of Acts when, when Peter is there at, ch at, at the church and he's, uh, he's withdrawing from the Gentile believers because the Jewish believers are present. Paul rebukes him publicly. Why? Because his sin was public. But here we're speaking of something that takes place in private. And if I know my brother or sister is sinning, the reality is I am my brother's keeper. I do need to love that person enough to confront them. Why? Because sin kills. And so whether it's my brother or sister sinning, I need to go to that person one-on-one. -on -one, or whether they've sinned against me, I need to go one-on-one. -on -one. Now, why is that important? Why should we care whether we go one-on-one -on -one or whether we do it otherwise? Well, number one, I believe it avoids confusion. It prevents things like gossiping and rumors from happening. Notice it doesn't say go and tell your friend and ask your friend what you should do. What if that friend accidentally lets it slip when they're talking to someone else? And pretty soon, what that friend tells someone else gets around to the person who has sinned. And now what does it appear like? See, it doesn't matter what my motives were in asking for advice at that point. It looks like I'm gossiping. It looks like I'm backstabbing that person. It looks like I'm talking behind their back. And guess what happens now? More confusion more conflict, more division. Now, instead of just having one issue to deal with, now we've got two issues to deal with, and maybe more depending on how many people know. In a day and age like today with social media, you can, with one little text or one little post, boom, now the whole world can know, literally, as crazy as it sounds. And so it avoids confusion, it avoids gossip and rumors, and the grapevine today is alive and well. It also avoids miscommunication. Have you ever had conflict that really just came down to miscommunication? Maybe you misunderstood what someone said or what they did or what they meant. And so by actually talking to the person, you're able to come to a resolution and understand what actually took place or what didn't take place. Especially that's true, I think, if you've heard about the incident from someone else, right? If someone else comes to you and says, hey, did you know so-and-so said this about you? Guess what? Go directly to that person. Work it out. Go straight to that person. Don't, don't let it take space in your head, but rather deal with it right away. It also protects us from bitterness and harboring anger and resentment. See, if I don't address it, if I don't, if I don't heed what it says in Scripture to not let the sun go down on our wrath, if I let it just stay there, what happens to our minds? We begin to think about it and think about it and think about it. 
when we play that tape over and over and over again, and we get more and more upset as time goes on. And so the Lord in his wisdom tells us, don't let the sun go down on our wrath. Deal with these things immediately if possible. I think here's one that we tend to forget, though. And I think this is the context of Philippians. It benefits the other person. It benefits the other person if I go one-on-one. This should be my heart. My heart should be, I want this person to grow. And I realize that sin will keep this person from growing in the Lord. I care about this person. And maybe this person, like all of us, has blind spots. Do you have any blind spots? I know I do. And sometimes I need people to come to me and say, Luke, now I don't want them to put me on blast if it's not something public, but I'd love it when someone takes me to the side, maybe, you know, away from the crowd and says, Luke, do you realize, da, 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 da. Do you realize you really hurt that person how you said what you said? Or you might have hurt them that, thank you, I didn't even realize that, right? It actually helps people to grow if they desire to grow, of course. And finally, it has the potential to actually strengthen your relationship with that person. Isn't it true that when you work through things with people, you actually grow in that relationship? Looking back at marriage, as if you've been married, hopefully, maybe for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I know I have a wide group of marriages in this room this morning. As you've been married, don't you kind of have to learn how to work through conflict? But the more that you've worked through, the closer you've become through the years. That's what I love seeing people that have been married for a number of years in our church. And those who maybe aren't even married yet, you know, learn from people. How did you stay married all those years and stay in love? How did you learn how to handle these things when you've disappointed one another? But you can actually strengthen your relationship with this. Now, just a couple quick thoughts uh, as far as heart preparation before you would ever go one-on-one to someone. I think number one, first and foremost, make sure you pray. Be led by the Holy Spirit. You know, you want the mind of Christ. You want the Spirit of God to lead you and direct you. Humble yourself. Make sure you come with an attitude of humility. And don't accuse. In other words, it's not just sometimes what you say, but even how you say it. If you come just busting through the door, you did this against me, you know, all of a sudden someone's going to put their, their, their wall up. They're not going to listen to what you're saying because of how I come at that person if I come already on the offensive. I would also say the rule of thumb for every Christian is that we're to forgive others as, Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven us, right? And so the more I understand how God in Christ has forgiven me, the more forgiving I will be then to other people when they do sin and it affects me. So in other words, it's a gospel issue. I have to make sure I get the gospel first. I got the cross first. And the more I understand the cross, it's going to change the way I approach that person who has maybe sinned against me. I would also focus on actions and not motives, right? Only God knows that person's heart of why they did what they did. I don't know their heart. I only know what they did. And finally, make sure your desire is to see the other person edified, which I believe is fruit of God's love in your heart. You know, having had to confront men for many years in addiction, I I really don't like conflict, to be honest with you. But I've learned through the years that if someone knows that I genuinely care about their welfare, they'll usually listen. If they genuinely know that I care about them. If they think I'm on a power trip and I just want to try to, you know, rub their face in the mud for being wrong, they're not going to listen very long. And so it does go back to our motives. But I do want to note here, because we're just really covering, this is a very fast coverage of something like this.
just because this one-on-one -on -one takes place doesn't negate the fact that sin still has consequences. Okay? And while forgiveness may take place, repentance must take place to build or rebuild trust. In other words, forgiveness does not necessarily equal trust. And therefore, depending on the type of sin, full re reconciliation may take time. Okay? Just as a quick example, and there are many, but if, if we in the church, if we had a woman come in here who was being abused by her husband physically, okay, obviously we want that woman to forgive him in her heart. And there would need to be a t some type of meeting between the parties. But it would be foolish just because the husband comes and says, I'm sorry, to put that woman back into harm's way right away. There needs to be repentance. And that means there needs to be time of repentance taking place so that there's safety. And so that's obviously an extreme. Here in the context of Scripture, we're talking about church misunderstandings. We're, we're not really talking about those type of heavy things that uh, are a lot more complex and not always black and white. But if possible, go one-on-one. -on -one. Next we see in Matthew there, he says, if that doesn't work, bring two or three witnesses. They're going to be there to support, but also maybe help me see. Maybe my complaint against the person isn't even that valid or whatnot. But those two or three witnesses, and then finally, if that doesn't work, the church gets involved. Now, obviously, in the context of our two ladies here, maybe they haven't been able to work it out by themselves. And that's why Paul is exhorting these people in the church in Philippi, work it out, help them to work it out together. Maybe they've tried this and it hasn't worked. Real quick on the other side, you know, it's not always that people sin against us. Have you ever found yourself on the other side of the fence where you're the one who's hurt someone? I think Jesus gives us great wisdom in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. This is a Jewish context, but we can apply it to our situation today. He said, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, what is he saying? That's kind of weird language. The context is this. He's speaking in Galilee. And the idea is this person has come clear up north from Galilee down to Jerusalem. They've got their sacrifice. They're there at the altar ready to have the sacrifice performed. And they realize someone back in Galilee has something against them. And so he's saying, leave the offering there in Jerusalem. Go back to Galilee. Make amends with that person. And then come back to Jerusalem and make that sacrifice. And you're saying, wow, that sounds really complex and really inconvenient. Well, that's pretty much the point. That when, it's, when it comes to sin, things do become inconvenient. And he's telling us, take every measure to make sure your relationship is right with other people. And if you think someone has something against you, go and work it out. Don't let it slide. Don't continue doing things as normal as you normally would. And so it's not always convenient. Also, a couple of things I think are important. Again, uh, if they had maybe part in it, make sure you focus on your part. Sometimes we have a tendency of focusing on the other person's part in the matter. I think it's always best to take responsibility for my end of the situation. Let the Holy Spirit bring them conviction. Avoid words such as but. Have you ever made a statement? I'm really sorry, but. You know, everything you just said, just as you can erase before that word but. Also, try not to use the word because. 
because now you're going to be seen as making justification or rationalizing what you did. Again, just take responsibility for my part. Let the Holy Spirit do his part. On either side, here, here's something I think is so important. Understand this. No matter what side of the fence you fall on this kind of relationship conflict, realize if you're talking to a brother or sister in Christ, this is someone for whom Christ has died. This is someone for whom he shed his blood. And if you have that mindset, no matter who you're at conflict with, it will transform the way you view your situation and that other person. And so let's go back to Philippians. We'll finish our text. Philippians chapter 4. Let's just reread verse 2. I implore Yodia, I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion. We don't know who that companion is. Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Notice that Paul implores the whole Christian community, including its leaders, to work through this issue with these two women. It's obvious, I think, that this issue is known to all of them, right? Perhaps there were people within the congregation who were saying, you know what, that's, that's on them. I don't want to get involved. I see there's conflict there. I just let them work it out by themselves. But here he's saying it's got to a point where the church needs to love on these women enough to take that step, to not pretend that the white elephant's not in the room, and address the issue, and do it in a manner that honors the Lord. Or perhaps they were pretending there was no issue. We don't know really what was going on. Maybe people didn't want to pry. But the issue has already gotten beyond that. And so truth to close. Notice how Paul ended that last statement though. Whose names are written in the book of life. In other words, all these people, including these two women's names, are written in this eternal book of life that you can find back in Exodus uh, chapter 32. You can find it in Psalm 68, in Luke 10, and in seven times in Revelation. This book that God is keeping, whose names are written there, who will spend eternity with the Lord. And I think one of the points of mentioning this book is this. You will spend the rest of eternity with these people. And so work on those relationships. Don't let sin, don't let ego, don't let pride, don't let different philosophies divide what Christ has united. Because the gospel is at stake, the name of Jesus Christ is at stake, the nature of God who we represent here on earth is at stake. He is one, therefore we are to be one. And so if conflict arises in this church, I pray let us do it in a way that honors the Lord, that glorifies him, that follows the word of God, and I believe it will prevent unnecessary damage if done in a manner that honors and pleases the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the wisdom that you give us how you want to protect us, Lord, from ourselves, from, again, that selfish ambition, that conceit, that pride, Lord, that those things that bring division. Only you know what was really going on with those two women, Father, but you cared enough to speak truth even into their situation, God, and you, you love us, Lord. You, 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 you desire us to follow after the example that you've laid for us in Scripture. So I pray, Father, that if there's anyone in this room that needs to work things out, that your spirit would move on hearts. Lord, maybe there's people who just need to let things go. Maybe your spirit's moving on our hearts to forgive and just let things go, Lord, this morning so that we can move forward. Whatever your will is, Lord, we just pray that 
you would have your way in your church, that we would be one, one heart, one mind, that we'd be led by your spirit, that we'd be filled with your spirit to genuinely love one another. Whether that means to forgive and cover a multitude of sin, whether that means to speak truth, to confront in a gentle and a loving manner, God, I pray that your name would be exalted in this church and in all the churches around the world, that your people would heed your counsel, that we'd be led by you in Jesus' name. Amen.